James Boyce, he just wanted to work through, for the most part, consecutively, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible, preaching from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He had a superior intellect, certainly capable of doing scholarly work at a true level of scholarship, but also very skilled at taking more complicated ideas and bringing them down a level or two so that uh, a broader lay audience could understand the deeper truths of Scripture. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, Executive Editor of Credo Magazine and Associate Professor of Christian Theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. For any of our listeners who grew up in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, uh, even the 70s, uh, may remember a familiar voice heard from 10th Presbyterian Church. And of course, uh, you probably can guess who I'm referring to. It's none other uh, than the preacher, James Montgomery Boyce. Uh, maybe you've read some of his books that are still around today, some of which uh, continue to be published and republished on uh, the doctrines of grace. But uh, maybe it's his sermons, his many, many years of devoted preaching that have stuck out to you and you continue to read to this day. Whatever the medium is, I think uh, we would all agree that he has had such an impact through uh, not just his sermons, but even his theology, uh, the way that uh, so much of his theological training uh, came into the pulpit, but then actually transferred over into print well, I think that it has affected many, uh, especially when we think about some of his major publications, um, his foundations of Christian of the Christian faith, uh, maybe most notably. But it's not just his publications or his sermons or his ministry, but I think what we see most of all in terms of his legacy is the way that he affected other people, the way that he put an imprint on other people reformed-minded pastors uh, and preachers, even scholars and university presidents. And of course, this is one good reason, maybe the most important reason, to ask what scholars out there, what theologians out there have been so influenced in the past that they've carried on this legacy themselves. Well, it's hard to think of uh, anyone who could be better to answer that question and to maybe even share from his own personal experience and story than Philip Graham Riken. Many of you know him. He is the eighth president of Wheaton College, and of course, he is the author of many, many different books, over 50 books, I think, some of which come out of his own sermons from his own preaching. Thank you, Dr. Riken, for joining us on the Credo Podcast. Thank you, Matthew. And uh, really, what a great subject, thinking about the life and ministry and legacy of James Montgomery Boyce, who was a late mentor for me, and I would also say a, a friend, certainly a colleague and brother in ministry. 
Mm. You know, it really is a unique type of uh, podcast we're about to have in, in conversation because oftentimes on this podcast, we talk about theology or we dive into a, per, a particular topic. But from time to time, we like to stop and uh, have our guests explain their own theological journey and, and give us insight into what it, what's like for them to be a theologian. But in this case, not only do we have uh, a unique opportunity to talk to you, but uh, we get to intersect paths and, and ask some deeper questions about uh, Boyce himself. And uh, I, I think, you know, you even mentioned it a second ago, the intersection of your career and his career, that's one that most of our listeners may not just read about in a book or, or hear about in a sermon. So let me just ask you, uh, right out of the gates, where did, in your life, as you look back, where did it intersect with Boyce? Yeah, it's a, that's a good question, Matthew. So I was a bit familiar with Dr. Boyce's ministry. The first time I can remember somebody mentioning his name, and I probably would have been vaguely aware of his involvement in the battle for the Bible in the 1970s, hmm. but the chair of the philosophy department at Wheaton College, Arthur Holmes, who was a mentor to me, would have said to me probably around 1986 or 1987, if you're thinking about seminary, maybe you should think about Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And if you went there, it would be great to connect with Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and the Ministry of 10th Presbyterian Church. I did end up going to Westminster, but during my time at Westminster, never worshipped at 10th Presbyterian Church. Our, our church home was in the northern suburbs of Philadelphia. Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology was a big event in Philadelphia every spring, but it always came when uh, we were studying for finals in seminary. So um, occasionally I would listen to him on the Bible study hour, um, Sunday mornings, my wife Lisa and I did. So I was a bit familiar with Dr. Boyce's ministry a little bit here and there. The first time I ever had a conversation with him, though, would have been in 19, the fall of 1994. And I was in my last year at, at Oxford University through little trail of events I won't get into, I had sent a resume and a cover letter to Dr. Boyce directly at the request of Will Barker, who was teaching at uh, Historical Theology, Church History at Westminster Seminary at the time. Um, and the pastoral search committee at 10th was very interested in considering me for a full-time role as associate minister of preaching there. And I had a brief interview, if you want to call it that, with Dr. Boyce. He was traveling called me from his hotel room. I could hear him kind of zipping up his luggage, taking stuff out of drawers, getting ready to travel. He really only wanted to know one thing, and that is how committed I, I was to expository preaching. Oh. He had read, you know, my answers to questions. He had seen my resume. Yeah, I'm sure he had talked to people who knew me well. So he wasn't starting from zero. But the main thing for him was my commitment to expository preaching. And I think that gives you a little insight into his main commitments as well. Now, help us connect the dots even further, because uh, those who know you know of, of your past with 10th Presbyterian Church. Now, James Montgomery Boyce uh, is there for, I think, over three decades, right? 1968 is when he starts, and I think all the way through 2000. Tell us, how, how how did he get there, and what was his yeah. ministry like? And then I'd love to hear 
how that then influenced you in your own preaching ministry. Well, the, the Boyce family connection with 10th Presbyterian Church was of long standing because Jim Boyce's father was a medical doctor and was on the board for Donald Gray Barnhouse's radio ministry. So the Boyces knew the Barnhouses. Dr. Barnhouse would stay with the Boyce family in Western Pennsylvania on some of his itinerant ministry. He was regularly Barnhouse, uh, preached at 10th Presbyterian Church from 1927 to 1960, was a well-known figure nationally through his broadcast. When the FCC opened up the airwaves to religious broadcasting, Donald Barnhouse was there with uh, Walter Meyer, with Fulton Sheen, and others who were nationally known on, the, uh, on radio. And he would travel to New York City, New York State, Western Pennsylvania, Pittsburgh area, and, and other places, occasional trips to the South as well. And he would stay in the boys' home when he traveled to Western Pennsylvania. In fact, at a certain point, Dr. Barnhouse opened the door for James Boyce to go to the Christian boarding school at Stony Brook in New York. Oh, wow. So that's the families really knew each other well. There's also an account that Dr. Boyce's mother gives of this was when they were living in the Philadelphia area and attending 10th Presbyterian Church as a family, knocking on the church door, Dr. Barnhouse opening the door to them, inviting them in and praying over the the toddler in her arms, which was James Boyce, uh, <laughs> praying for his future ministry. So there, there are a lot of connections there uh, between the two families. To me, the funniest one by far is what uh, Dr. Boyce's mother said when he was appointed as the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church. So 1960 or 61, Mariano, Mariano DeGange, Canadian, outstanding preacher, strong commitment to global missions, came to 10th Presbyterian Church. He was on the Mayor's Commission for Civil Rights. So as a conservative evangelical congregation, uh, 10th was ahead of its time in engaging racial issues in the city of Philadelphia. And that, a lot of that was DeGange's leadership. Anyway, there was a pulpit vacancy in 1967. The head of the uh, pulpit seeking committee is also somebody very well known. It was C. Everett Koop, who at that time was not yet Surgeon General, but was a well known surgeon who, by that point, I think already would have pioneered several life saving procedures for newborns. They had had a hard time finding somebody that they thought could really sustain the preaching tradition of that church, not just the tradition of Barnhouse, but other great preachers going back to the 19th century. So <laughs> Dr. Boyce's father said to Dr. Barnhouse, you know, what about my son? He might be a good fit for this. So uh, Dr. Boyce had been educated at Princeton University, he had done his, not only his uh, MDiv at Princeton, but then had did his PhD work at Basel in Switzerland, and had come back to work with Carl Henry at Christianity Today as associate editor. And part of his responsibility was doing at least one of the front editorials in Christianity Today. But he was uh, doing some itinerant preaching, and I think still felt called to, to pastoral ministry. And it was arranged for him to preach at a Presbyterian church in the Washington, D.C. area. If memory serves, it was Sixth Presbyterian Church in, in Washington. And when Dr. Coop and a couple other elders, they, they drove down for an evening service, 
Dr. Coop was two minutes into that sermon and he put his notebook away because he knew this was this was the Presbyterian church. He, he just knew right away. Here's somebody who knows how to handle the word of God, preaches with authority. When Dr. Boyce's mother heard him tell her that he was going to be the next pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, she said, there was a pause, and then she said, well, 10th Church isn't what it used to be, is it? <laughs> so that's a mother for you. Um, I think anybody that knows the history of the church knows that James Boyce was fully the equal of Donald Barnhouse, <laughs> although differently gifted in very significant ways. Yes. Uh, but fully the equal of anybody who ever held that pulpit. And probably even his mother eventually figured that out as well. But that's how James Boyce started his ministry at 10th Presbyterian Church. And he was, I think, his first Sunday there was Easter Sunday in 1968. Now, you mentioned his preaching. What was it about his preaching that you mentioned that it was expository and and that was a very important and basic pre-commitment to even coming into the church but what made him as you just said the the equal uh in in the pulpit yeah so i i love jim boyce as a preacher and um so many people whose lives were impacted by him at, at 10th presbyterian church feel the same way there are a few things I would point to. I think one thing is just his mentality and disposition of true surrender to the authority of God's Word, and his very strong commitment to making its meaning clear. That is not a sufficient condition for great uh, preaching, but it is a necessary condition for preaching that is true preaching at all. Mm. So James Boyce, he just wanted to work through, for the most part, consecutively, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible preaching from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He had a superior intellect, certainly capable of doing scholarly work at a true level of scholarship, but also very skilled at taking more complicated ideas and bringing them down a level or two so that uh, a broader lay audience could understand the deeper truths of Scripture. Mm. So I think a, a bit of a translator um, I think is a gift that he had. His outlines were very clear. I think he was particularly good at ending sermons well. He did something that I like in a preacher, and that is he tended to make his longer or more complicated points earlier in a sermon and then draw things to a close a bit more quickly. I think that's a charity to an audience often came to a point of gospel conclusion if he had not done so earlier in the message um, as well. I also think he, he's an interesting preacher, and I think all preachers should be interesting. He was interesting in a couple of different ways, partly because he was very well read, and so he was able to draw relevant historical anecdotes, uh, draw things from the history of the church. I remember talking to a member of our church who had gone to complete her college education long after her high school years and had felt that her educational background was limited, just the school she had the opportunity to attend. And she felt strongly that she was much better prepared for college and felt like when she finally had an opportunity to study at that level, she was ready for it. And the main reason is because she had learned a lot of things from James Boyce over the years, not just things about the Bible, but things about history and things about culture and things that were integrated into um, his preaching. And I, I think 
I think that was one aspect of what made him an interesting preacher. I think more importantly, though, he found what was interesting in the Bible itself, what was interesting in the characters of the Bible, what was surprising in a biblical text, what was uh, a pivot point in the thinking of a biblical author in a particular passage, so that he was very skilled at drawing out uh, the inherent interest in in the Bible itself. Mm. I think I would be remiss if I did not also mention the fact that he was blessed with a very effective voice for public speaking. In fact, it was common for children at 10th Presbyterian Church when they were little to refer to him as Dr. Voice, not Dr. Boyce, (laughs) Um, because this was a very significant voice in their experience. It had a way of arresting your attention he took his calling seriously and teaching the Bible seriously in a way that commanded attention. And part of it was the voice that God gifted him with. And I, I think, you know, when we're in ministry, God gives us different gifts to be used in different ways. It's not surprising that when God wanted to make James Montgomery Boyce a preacher, he gifted him with a voice that would be effective for that calling. There are a lot more things I could say about his preaching, but I think those are some important hallmarks to start with. Now, you mentioned how your path intersected with his as you come to 10th Presbyterian Church, I believe in the mid-1990s. How did Boyce's preaching, even his pastoral ministry, how did that affect you, not just in the pulpit as you then preached, but even you personally as a pastor in the years ahead? Yeah, I'll, I'll preface this by saying this, that One of the things that I was maybe cautioned about a bit when I came to the church is, look, James Montgomery Boyce, he's not going to spend a lot of time mentoring you. Hmm. That's not the way he's wired. He also has a calling to a wider ministry. And I think from time to time, the uh, church had maybe some younger ministers or interns that just wanted more from that relationship than Dr. Boyce, I think, was called to give. So I came with very modest expectations in that regard, and I, in a way appropriately so, because I, I already had my own strong convictions about preaching, understood what some of my gifts for preaching were, had had outstanding mentors in, in pastoral ministry and in preaching, some of whom are quite well known, some of whom are not well known, but had a big impact in my life through the faithfulness of their um, ministry. There were a couple of gifts that James Boyce really gave me, though. One of them was just an appreciation and encouragement for my ministry of the Word. So I've noticed that there's a number of points in ministry. Some of the older ministers that I've known do not focus very much with young ministers on things they can improve, fault-finding, correction. They really focus on encouragement. And that was a gift that um, uh, James Boyce gave to me. One of the simplest things he did, so he he often traveled out of town by Sunday night, but he virtually without exception lingered for the Sunday evening worship service at 10th Presbyterian Church, which was my main responsibility. I was basically preaching week in, week out on Sunday evenings. And he would sit in the sanctuary and he would smile. That's, uh, that's, a, that's a nice gift to have. Yeah. Um, as a as a young preacher, somebody that you know gifted and experienced to have 
you know, the smile of his blessing and the blessing of his smile. At a certain point, I invited, well, I didn't invite him. I, I had an office way up in the top of this old building at 10th Presbyterian Church. I was up on the fourth floor, what actually would have been servants' quarters in an old Delancey Place mansion there. And Dr. Boyce was up on the fourth floor. He wasn't up there mainly to see me. He was up there to see somebody that had a business function or administrative function at the college. But he stopped by. And I said, uh, Dr. Boyce, I appreciate it. You're you're there every Sunday evening. Um, You haven't presumed to give me any counsel or guidance on my preaching. I'm trying to do as well as I can. I want to get better as much as I can. I would welcome, if you have anything to say that can improve my preaching, things you've noticed that I should be working on. And he said, no, just keep doing what you're doing. Mm. Just keep preaching. You'll figure out the things that you need to figure out. So that was very affirming. And then as he was leaving, he said, oh, there is one thing. He said, you shouldn't wear a tie clip. It's distracting. <laughs> so, I've never worn a tie clip since then. That was the end of tie clips for me. I, I kind of like my gold tie clip. It kept the tie in place, but it was it caught the light in a distracting way. Okay. So I, I, I think that if I had really pressed him on you know, like, let's talk about introductions and let's talk about application. And let's like, you know, sure, he would have had things that he could have improved and um, we could have done that. But I I think he felt that God was using what I was doing as a preacher. And he just knew from his own life, the main thing you need to do is just keep working on it and just keep preaching. And I I I also think this, this would be my own conviction. I, I can't put it into his mind, but it wouldn't surprise me if he thought along similar lines. It's not helpful when you're preaching or doing other forms of ministry to be outside of yourself trying to analyze how you're doing. Mm. You're much better off just being your authentic self, totally caught up in the moment doing that thing which you are called to do. That's not to say there's not a place for, from time to time, getting constructive feedback on preaching and, uh, you know, maybe listening to yourself a little bit. Yeah. Okay. There's a place for those kinds of improvement, but that shouldn't be the main place that a preacher is really thinking about. Um, The preacher should be thinking about glorifying God, thinking about the biblical text open on the pulpit in front of him and thinking about the people in the congregation that need the word of God and, and, and how to connect with them and caught up in all of that in an authentic way. And, that would be my way of capturing something that I think is an important principle. It, it wouldn't surprise me if, if Dr. Boyce took a similar view and certainly thought that I was preaching effectively enough that the main thing to do was keep doing it. Mm. Now, you were at 10th Presbyterian Church, I believe, for 15 years or around 15 years before you were appointed as president at Wheaton, Wheaton College. Now, by that time, Jim Boyce had passed on and went to be with the Lord. But I've always thought about this question. And so, I, you know, selfishly, this is, this is a, the opportunity for me to, to see what you might say, because uh, here you're at 10th Presbyterian Church. You're pastoring, you're preaching for many years, uh, taking the baton, so to speak, from uh, Jim Boyce as you then come into your own preaching ministry over a long period of time. And then the switch to University President Wheaton. So I guess I want to throw two questions at you. One is, tell us, you know, what was behind that transition? 
how was that transition going from preaching like Jim Boyce did for so many years at 10th Presbyterian Church to university president? And then I'd love to hear, you know, these are maybe these, this is an impossible question, but the what if question, right? What if he was still with us? Uh, what do you think he would say to you uh, as, as he's, uh, you know, you talked about him sitting and smiling in the pew. I love that story uh, as you're preaching. As you have transitioned to university president, have you ever thought about that question now in your your new role there at Wheaton College? Uh, what if Jim were here today? Uh, what type of encouragement would he give you? Yeah, so uh, interesting questions. Let me just back up and say one thing. Matthew, one of the things we talked about, and you you mentioned this at the very beginning of the podcast here, that uh, one of Dr. Boyce's significant books is, in effect, his Systematic Theology for Lay People, a book called Foundations of the Christian Faith. And that's a book I, I commend to every listener. It's a really great basic uh, theology of the Christian faith, written from a Reformed perspective. What I want to mention about it is that I there's a the most recent edition of this, it's a beautiful edition that IVP Academic did, has a, has a study guide at the end, which is totally new. And I wrote the foreword for it. And one of the things I, I included in the foreword was Dr. Boyce's, in effect, his dying words to his beloved congregation after his cancer diagnosis. It was his belief that he would die quickly, and he was right about that. And people were sending him all kinds of remedies and telling him that he would be healed. And he just had a deep sense. No, I've done the work. I've done the work that God has called me to do. I did as well as I could with all of its limitations. I, I need to accept that and be ready to make my entrance into glory. And he did a beautiful way of capturing his sense of the sovereignty of God over his own um, his own fatal illness of liver cancer. And that's uh, recorded a bit at the beginning of the book. So anybody that wanted to know a little bit more about Dr. Boyce's uh, transition to glory and how he handled that, how he died well and modeled dying well for his congregation, there are easy ways to get a hold of, of that story. Well, the one thing I do think about sometimes is what Dr. Boyce's ministry would have been like had he lived, which, of course, was our hope. And, you know, it seems so premature, him dying at age 62, and uh, he had a you know, had the Lord spared him, there were so many things that he could have done in life and ministry. Having said that, I do think that he was already feeling that his main life's work of preaching, of radio ministry, his work with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, that he had done many of the things that God had called him to do. And I'm not entirely sure how he would have made the transition. I do think that he himself believed he was coming towards the end of his ministry to that congregation. But I don't think he had figured out quite, quite what that um, transition would look like. I do think it's accurate to say his expectation was that I would succeed him in that ministry. And in fact, from time to time, he would say, you know, that Phil, that will be your problem to deal with. Um, things like that, you know, that he knew a, a leadership transition was would come. He would not have anticipated necessarily that I eventually would have uh, come here to, to Wheaton College. He highly valued the work of the academy and the life of the mind. Mm. So he valued what it is that Christ-centered colleges and universities do. He valued highly his own Princeton education and had a respect for, through God's common grace, what happens at secular academies as, as well as sacred ones. 
So I think that aspect of calling is something that he could resonate with. He himself was called lifelong to gospel ministry in a local church. And I think it would be in some ways hard for him to imagine making a transition out of that because that's not the transition God ever called him to make. Um, I will say he had opportunities to do so, whether it was seminary leadership or leadership of other institutions. I guess I'm not specifically aware of any Christian college opportunities. Nothing comes to mind in that area, but certainly he had opportunities to be the president of various seminaries, people that really encouraged him to consider that possibility. I think he would have been highly gifted for that work. But he had a strong commitment to local church ministry, understood that's where he was called. Mm. My calling is a bit different in, that, in, in this regard. I'm very clear I have a lifelong calling to gospel ministry until God makes it clear. Otherwise, that's what I am called to do. But I also think that Christ-centered college presidency is a place to exercise a gospel ministry. Mm. And I told the trustees at Wheaton College, the only kind of college president I could be is somebody that views this as a form of pastoral ministry. If that's not a good fit for Wheaton, it's not a good fit for me. It's not something we, we need to talk about further. Just a little bit of life context. My my family moved to Wheaton, Illinois when I was one year old so that my father could accept a teaching position. And he taught at Wheaton for 52 years, um, only very recently, finally and fully retired from uh, teaching English here. And I was on the board of visitors and then the board of trustees at Wheaton College for 10 years uh, before becoming president. I have to go back and look at the dates. I think I had just started or been asked to start on the Board of Visitors at the college before Dr. Boyce died. So around that time, maybe just before, that would be, I'd have to check the dates on that. But I don't, it would be, in a way, I think the world has changed so much since 2000 Yes. that he would need a fair amount of catching up. Yeah to understand all the ways that the world has changed. And some of them, they're, they're longer-term cultural trends that he was talking about and preaching about and writing about in the 1990s. But the world's a different place. So that, that would be a kind of hindrance to our ability to connect. It would, it would take a longer conversation to get him <laughs> up to speed on not just my life, but a lot of things that have happened in the world, not least uh, the attacks on the World Trade Center. Um, The the only other thing I'll comment on just this question, Matthew, is that our family has a, uh, I'll say, a lifelong loving relationship with the Boyce family and specifically with Linda Boyce, who was a great mentor for my oldest son, who was in her Sunday school class at 10th Presbyterian Church. And we have a warm personal connection that, that continues to this day, even though we live apart. So there's a There's a strong relationship there, and uh, Linda Boyce has been very supportive of us in whatever ministry calling we've had. First of all, let me just say, uh, Dr. Riken, you know, that that love that you mentioned, the the love for the life of the mind, as you called it, uh, that was so present in in Jim Boyce, uh, I think for many who are observing you as, as president of Wheaton College, 
we see that continue. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I think you're right. You know, so much has happened since 2000. It's almost bewildering. You know, when, when we look back at it, I mean, it, it's, it's overwhelming in a sense. And, uh, yeah, I, I think you're right. It would take some catching up to even have that conversation, uh, if, if the Lord permitted him to live. But in another sense, uh, I think we get a flavor for it in, in seeing how the life of the mind is carried on. In, in your own pastoral ministry, but in uh, a college setting, which I guess leads me to a final question, and I'll give that to you and, and allow you to bring this full circle. Uh, when we go back to, I mean, on the one hand, so much has changed, but on the other hand, the, the life of the mind continues uh, to circle around some of the same issues. For, for Jim Boyce, well, I'll just mention two of them. I mean, you mentioned his Foundations of Christian Faith. Uh, which I recommend to our listeners to pick up, and especially the new edition you mentioned, because they'll get your words, your forward, along with that study guide. But two other issues that come up in his lifetime were the doctrines of grace, which he was passionate about and wrote about. And also, uh, maybe some don't know this, but he actually was chairman of the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy. And you mentioned this towards the beginning of our conversation with some of the battles uh, over scripture and inspiration and even inerrancy. Can you close us out and give us uh, a bit of a window into the life of the mind for Jim Boyce and perhaps even for us today over these two particular uh, and, and very important issues, uh, the doctrines of grace on the one hand, so soteriology, and then the doctrine of scripture is specifically his uh, his role with some of those founding members of the uh, Chicago, um, that, that meeting in Chicago? Yeah. Well, so great, great question. Um, you know, first of all, I, I would describe James Boyce as a joyful Calvinist. So I may say that's redundant, but um, still a good descriptor. <laughs> Very good. Um, really took great satisfaction, joy, evident joyful satisfaction in the public worship of God and really reveled in God's sovereignty, in uh, the graciousness of the gospel. That was a constant theme. He would have said that comes from Jesus and Paul and everything in the Bible. And we've learned a lot about it from Luther and especially Calvin. And he would have seen his own writings as very much in a Calvinian um, tradition. You know, on the one hand, James Boyce was very comfortable. Okay, if you want to put an ism on it, this is Calvinism. But what he was interested in was the biblical doctrines themselves, and not in a um, polemically off-putting way, but actually in a way that really drew as many Christians as possible into the truths of the Reformation. Um, I think that was his disposition. I think of him as a bit of an ecumenical Calvinist, ecumenical in the sense that he wanted to find common cause with as many believers as he could um, on whatever whatever issue was facing uh, facing the church. The great challenge of his day, and particularly in the 1970s, but in the, in the, into the 1980s, was whether the Bible truly is the Word of God, whether it is truly an inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word. And that battle was fought very much in the mainline church, mainline Presbyterian church. That's the arena in which James Boyce uh, fought those battles, and he found common cause with R.C. Sproul, and he found common cause with Carl Henry and with uh, Charles Colson and, and others who similarly were very concerned about defending the Bible as the Word of God. 
His focus a bit shifted later in his ministry, not that he gave up any of his convictions on the authority of, of Scripture, but he found the evangelical church paying lip service to the inerrancy of Scripture, but then looking to a lot of other places for spiritual enlightenment and for practical instruction on how to live rather than being founded fundamentally on the Bible. So I would say in his later years, a bigger theme for him was the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's maybe a trajectory that he was anticipating, and probably rightly so would be of ongoing relevance. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy has served us really well. Um, Not only the statement on biblical inerrancy, but there are two other statements that go with it that basically get into more of the hermeneutics of Scripture, how we interpret Scripture if it is inerrant. And although evangelical scholars that look at those documents today, now 40 years on, might have a correction here they'd like to make, an improvement there, that document serves us very well to this day as an evangelical statement of, of the doctrine of Scripture. He was not the only person involved in that fight, but was a critical catalyst. And because of his scholarly credentials, the precision of his writing, he was one of the main architects of of those documents. He also commanded respect as someone who, at very significant personal cost, uh, had left the denomination that he believed had left the inerrancy of Scripture, and that had a lot of consequences, but led to great flourishing in ministry at 10th Presbyterian Church. So having made that decision to leave as a congregation, the church really never looked back. I I admire the way that not only the fact that he was on the right side of those battles, but also the way that he fought them. And in the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy has left a document of enduring relevance for the church. I think that'll be evident not only in this century, but also in the century to come. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.